0: chapter fifteen of emily bronte by agnes mary frances robinson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. wuthering heights the story part i on the summit of haworth hill beyond the street stands a grey stone house which is shown as the original of wuthering heights a few scant and wind-baffled ash-trees grow in front the moors rise at the back, stretching away for Miles. It is a house of some pretensions, once the parsonage of Grimshaw, that powerful Wesleyan preacher who, whip in hand, used to visit the black bull on Sunday morning and lash their merrymakers into chapel to listen to his sermon. Somewhat fallen from its former pretensions, it is a farmhouse now, with much such an oak-lined and stone-floored house as is described in Wuthering Heights. Over the door there is, moreover, a piece of carving, H. E. 1659, a close enough resemblance to Hareton Earnshaw, 1500. But the wilderness of crumbling griffins and shameless little boys are nowhere to be found. Neither do we notice the excessive slant of a few stunted firs at the end of the house, and a range of gaunt thorns all stretching their limbs one way as if craving alms of the sun, and to my thinking, this fine old farm of Souden's is far too near the mills of Haworth to represent the godforsaken lonely house of Emily's fancy. Having seen the place as in duty bound, one returns more than ever impressed by the fact that while every individual and every sight in Charlotte's novels can be clearly identified, Emily's imagination and her power of drawing conclusions are alone responsible for the character of her creations. This is not saying that she had no data to go upon. Had she not seen Soudan's and many more such houses, she would never have invented Wuthering Heights. The story and passion of Branwell set on her fancy to imagine the somewhat similar story and passion of Heathcliff. But in the process of her work, the nature of her creations completely overmastered the facts and memories which had induced her to begin. These were but the handful of dust which she took to make her man. And the qualities and defects of her masterpiece are both largely accounted for when we remember that her creation of character was quite unmodified by any attempt at portraiture. Therefore, in Wuthering Heights, it is with a story, a fancy picture, that we have to deal, in drawing and proportion, not unnatural, but certainly not painted after nature. To quote her sister's beautiful comments, Wuthering Heights was hewn in a wild workshop with simple tools out of homely materials. The statuary found a granite block on a solitary moor. Gazing thereon, he saw how from the crag might be elicited a head, savage, swart, sinister, a form molded with at least one element of grandeur, power he wrought with a rude chisel, and from no model but the vision of his meditations. With time and labor the crag took human shape, and there it stands, colossal, dark, and frowning, half statue, half rock, in the former sense terrible and goblin-like, in the latter almost beautiful, for its coloring is of mellow gray, and moorland moss clothes it, and heath, with its blooming bells and balmy fragrance, grows faithfully close to the giant's foot. Of the rude chisel we find plentiful traces in the first few chapters of the book. The management of the narrative is singularly clumsy, introduced by a Mr. Lockwood, a stranger to the North, an imaginary misanthropist, who has taken a grange on the moor to be out of the way of the world, and afterwards continued to him by his housekeeper to amuse the long leisures of a winter illness. But passing over this initial awkwardness of conception, we find a manner equal to the matter, and somewhat resent Charlotte's eloquent comparison, for there are touches fine and delicate that only a practised hand may dare to give, and there is feeling in the book, not only terrible and goblin-like, but patient and constant, sprightly and tender consuming and passionate we find getting over the inexperienced beginning that the style of the work is noble and accomplished and that far from being a half-hewn and casual fancy a head surmounting a trunk of stone its plan is thought out with scientific exactness no line blurred no clue forgotten the work of an intense and poetic temperament whose vision is too vivid to be incongruous. The first four chapters of Wuthering Heights are merely introductory. They relate Mr. Lockwood's visit there, his surprise at the rudeness of the place in contrast with the foreign air and look of breeding that distinguishes Mr. Heathcliff and his beautiful daughter-in-law. He also noticed the profound moroseness and ill-temper of everybody in the house. Overtaken by a snowstorm, He was, however, constrained to sleep there, and was conducted by the housekeeper to an old chamber long unused, where, since at first he could not sleep, he amused himself by looking over a few mildewed books piled on one corner of the window ledge. They in the ledge were scrawled all over with writing. Catherine Earnshaw sometimes varied to Catherine Heathcliff and again to Catherine Linton. Nothing save these three names are written on the ledge, but the books were covered in every fly-leaf and margin with a pen-and-ink commentary, a sort of diary as it proved, scrawled in childish hand. Mr. Lockwood spent the first portion of the night in deciphering this faded record, a string of childish mishaps and deficiencies dated a quarter of a century ago evidently this Catherine earnshaw must have been one of heathcliff's kin for he figured in the narrative as her fellow scapegrace and the favourite scapegoat of her elder brother's wrath after some time mr lockwood fell asleep to be troubled by harassing dreams in one of which he fancied that this childish Catherine earnshaw or rather her spirit was knocking and scratching at the first scraped window-pane, begging to be let in, overcome with the intense horror of nightmare, he screamed aloud in his sleep, waking suddenly up, he found to his confusion that his yell had been heard for Heathcliff appeared exceedingly angry that any anyone had been allowed to sleep in the oak closeted room. If the little fiend had got in at the window, she probably would have strangled me. I returned. Catherine Linton, or Earnshaw, or however she was called, she must have been a changeling, wicked little soul. She told me she had been walking the earth these twenty years, a just punishment for her mortal transgressions, I've no doubt. Scarcely were these words uttered when I recollected the association of Heathcliff's with Catherine's name in the books. I blushed at my inconsideration but without showing further consciousness of the offense, I hastened to add, the truth is, sir, I passed the first part of the night, in." here I stopped afresh, I was about to say, perusing those old volumes, then it would have revealed my knowledge of their written as well as their printed contents. So I went on, in spelling over the name scratched on that window ledge, a monotonous occupation calculated to set me asleep like counting or What can you mean by talking in this way to me, thundered Heathcliff with savage vehemence. How, how dare you under my roof? God, he's mad to speak so, and he struck his forehead with rage. I did not know whether to resent this language or pursue my explanation, but he seemed so powerfully affected that I took pity and proceeded with my dreams. Heathcliff gradually fell back into the shelter of the bed as I spoke, finally sitting down almost concealed behind it. I guessed, however, by his irregular and intercepted breathing, that he struggled to vanquish an excess of violent emotion. Not liking to show him that I had heard the conflict, I continued my toilet rather noisily and soliloquized on the length of the night. Not three o'clock yet. I could have taken oath it had been six. Time stagnates here we must surely have retired to rest at eight always at nine in winter and rise at four said my host suppressing a groan and as i fancied by the motion of his arm's shadow dashing a tear from his eyes mr lockwood he added you may go into my room you'll only be in the way coming downstairs so early take the candle and go where you please i shall join you directly keep out of the yard though the dogs are unchained and the house, Juno mounts Sentinel there, and, nay, you can only ramble about the steps and passages, but away with you, I'll come in two minutes. I obeyed so far as to quit the chamber, when, ignorant where the narrow lobbies led, I stood still, and was witness involuntarily to a piece of superstition on the part of my landlord, which belied oddly his apparent sense. He got on to the bed, and wrenched open the lattice, bursting as he pulled at it into an uncontrollable passion of tears come in come in he sobbed cathy do come oh my heart's darling hear me this time catherine at last the spectre showed a spectre's ordinary caprice it gave no sign of being but the snow and wind whirled wildly through even reaching my station and blowing out the light there was such anguish in the gush of grief that accompanied this raving that my compassion made me overlook its folly and i drew off half angry to have listened at all and vexed at having related my ridiculous nightmare since it produced that agony the why was beyond my comprehension mr lockwood got no clue to the mystery at wuthering heights and later on returned to thrushcross grange to fall ill of a lingering fever. During his recovery he heard the history of his landlord from his housekeeper, who had been formerly an occupant of Wuthering Heights, and after that for many years the chief retainer at Thrushcross Grange, where young Mrs. Heathcliff used to live when she still was Catherine Linton. Do you know anything of Mr. Heathcliff's story? said Mr. Lockwood to his housekeeper, Nelly Dean. It's a cuckoo, sir, she answered, It is at this point that the history of Wuthering Heights commences that violent, bitter history of the little dark thing harbored by a good man to his bane, carried over the threshold as Christabel lifted Geraldine out of pity for the weakness which, having grown strong, shall crush the hand that helped it, carried over the threshold as evil spirits are carried, powerless to enter of themselves, and yet no evil demon, only a human soul lost and blackened by tyranny, injustice, and congenital ruin. The story of Wuthering Heights is the story of Heathcliff. It begins with the sudden journey of the old squire, Mr. Earnshaw, to Liverpool, one summer morning at the beginning of harvest. He had asked the children each to choose a present, only let it be little, for I shall walk there and back sixty miles each way. And the son Hindley, a proud high-spirited lad of fourteen had chosen a fiddle six-year-old Cathy a whip for she could ride any horse in the stable and nelly dean their humble playfellow and runner of errands had been promised a pocketful of apples and pears it was the third night since mr earnshaw's departure and the children sleepy and tired had begged their mother to let them sit up a little longer yet a little longer to welcome their father and see their new presence at last just about eleven o'clock, Mr. Earnshaw came back, laughing and groaning over his fatigue, and opening his greatcoat, which he held bundled up in his arms, he cried, See here, wife, I was never so beaten with anything in my life, but you must e'en take it as a gift of God, though it's as dark almost as if it came from the devil. We crowded round, and over Miss Cathy's head I had a peep at a dirty, ragged, black-haired child, big enough both to walk and talk indeed, its face looked older than Catherine's, yet when it was set on its feet it only stared round and repeated over and over again some gibberish that nobody could understand. I was frightened and Mrs. Earnshaw was ready to fling it out of doors. She did fly up asking how he could fashion to bring that gypsy brat into the house when they had their own bairns to feed and fend for. What he meant to do with it, and whether he were mad. The master tried to explain the matter, but he was really half dead with fatigue, and all that I could make out amongst her scolding was a tale of his seeing it starving and houseless and as good as dumb in the streets of Liverpool, where he picked it up and inquired for its owner. Not a soul knew to whom it belonged, he said, and his money and time being both limited, he thought it better to take it home with him at once, then run into vain expenses there, because he was determined he would not leave it as he found it. So the child entered Wuthering Heights, a cause of dissension from the first. Mrs. Earnshaw grumbled herself calm. The children went to bed crying, for the fiddle had been broken and the whip lost in carrying the little stranger for so many miles. But Mr. Earnshaw was determined to have his protégé respected, he cuffed saucy little Cathy for making faces at the newcomer and turned Nellie Dean out of the house for having set him to sleep on the stairs because the children would not have him in their bed. And when she ventured to return some days afterwards, she found the child adopted into the family and called by the name of a son who had died in childhood Heathcliff. Nevertheless, he had no enviable position. Cathy, indeed, was very thick with him, and the master had taken to him strangely, believing every word he said. For that matter, he said precious little, and generally the truth. But Mrs. Earnshaw disliked the little interloper, and never interfered in his behalf, when Hindley, who hated him, thrashed and struck the sullen, patient child, who never complained, but bore all his bruises in silence this endurance made old earnshaw furious when he discovered the persecutions to which this mere baby was subjected the child soon discovered it to be a most efficient instrument of vengeance i remember mr earnshaw once bought a couple of colts at the parish fair and gave the lads each one heathcliff took the handsomest but it soon fell lame and when he discovered it he said to hindley you must exchange horses with me I don't like mine, and if you don't, I shall tell your father of the three thrashings you've given me this week, and show him my arm which is black to the shoulder. Hindley put out his tongue and cuffed him over the ears. You'd better do it at once, he persisted, escaping to the porch. They were in the stables. You'll have to, and if I speak of these blows, you'll get them back with interest. Off, dog, cried Hindley, threatening him with an iron weight used for weighing potatoes and hay throw it he replied standing still and then i'll tell how you boasted you would turn me out of doors as soon as he died and see whether he will not turn you out directly hindley threw it hitting him on the breast and down he fell but staggered up immediately breathless and white and had not i prevented it he would have gone just so to the master and got full revenge by letting his condition plead for him intimating who had caused it Take my colt, Gipsy, then, said young Earnshaw, and I pray that he may break your neck. Take him and be damned, you beggarly interloper, and wheedle my father out of all he has, only afterwards show him what you are, imp of Satan, and take that. I hope he'll kick out your brains. Heathcliff had gone to loose the beast and shift it to his own stall. He was passing behind it when Hindley finished his speech by knocking him under its feet and without stopping to examine whether his hopes were fulfilled, ran away as fast as he could. I was surprised to witness how coolly the child gathered himself up and went on with his intention, exchanging saddles and all, and then sitting down on a bundle of hay to overcome the qualm which the violent blow occasioned, before he entered the house. I persuaded him easily to let me lay the blame of his bruises on the horse. He heeded little what tale was told, so that he had what he wanted. He complained so seldom, indeed, of such things as these, that I really thought him not vindictive. I was deceived completely, as you will hear. So the division grew. This malignant, uncomplaining child with foreign skin and eastern soul could only breed discord in that Yorkshire home. He could not understand what was honorable by instinct to an English mind he was quick to take an advantage, long-suffering, sly, nursing his revenge in silence like a vindictive slave, until at last the moment of retribution should be his. Sufficiently truthful and brave to have grown noble in another atmosphere, but with a ready bent to underhand and brooding vengeance. Insensible it seemed to gratitude, proud with the unreasoning pride of an Oriental cruel and violently passionate. One soft and tender speck there was in this dark and sullen heart. It was an exceedingly great and forbearing love for the sweet, saucy, naughty Catherine. But this one affection only served to augment the mischief that he wrought. He, who had estranged son from father, husband from wife, severed brother from sister as completely, For Hindley hated the swarthy child who was Cathy's favourite companion. When Mrs. Earnshaw died two years after Heathcliff's advent, Hindley had learned to regard his father as an oppressor rather than a friend, and Heathcliff as an intolerable usurper. So, from the very beginning, he bred bad feeling in the house. In the course of time, Mr. Earnshaw began to fail. His strength suddenly left him, and he grew half childish, irritable, and extremely jealous of his authority. He considered any slight to Heathcliff as a slight to his own discretion, so that, in the master's presence, the child was deferred to and courted from respect for that master's weakness, while behind his back the old wrongs, the old hatred, showed themselves unquenched. And so the child grew up bitter and distrustful, Matters got a little better for a while when the untamable Hindley was sent to college, yet still there was disturbance and disquiet, for Mr. Earnshaw did not love his daughter Catherine, and his heart was yet further embittered by the grumbling and discontent of old Joseph the servant, the wearisomest self-righteous Pharisee that ever ransacked a Bible to take the promises to himself and fling the curses to his neighbors. But Catherine, though slighted for Heathcliff and nearly always in trouble on his account, was much too fond of him to be jealous. The greatest punishment we could invent for her was to keep her separate from Heathcliff. Certainly she had ways with her such as I never saw a child take up before, and she put all of us past our patience fifty times and oftener in a day, from the hour she came downstairs till the hour she went to bed we hadn't a minute's security that she wouldn't be in mischief. Her spirits were always at high water mark; her tongue always going, singing, laughing, and plaguing everybody who would not do the same. A wild, wicked slip she was, but she had the bonniest eye, the sweetest smile, and the lightest foot in the parish. And after all, I believe she meant no harm, for when once she made you cry in good earnest, it seldom happened that she wouldn't keep your company and oblige you to be quiet, that you might comfort her. In play she liked exceedingly to act the little mistress, using her hands freely and commanding her companions. Suddenly this pretty mischievous sprite was left fatherless. Mr. Earnshaw died quietly, sitting in his chair by the fireside one October evening. Mr. Hindley, now a young man of twenty, came home to the funeral, to the great astonishment of the household, bringing a wife with him a rush of alas spare and bright-eyed with a changing hectic colour hysterical and full of fancies fickle as the winds now flighty and full of praise and laughter now peevish and languishing for the rest the very idol of her husband's heart a word from her a passing phrase of dislike for heathcliff was enough to revive all young earnshaw's former hatred of the boy Heathcliff was turned out of their society, no longer allowed to share Cathy's lessons, degraded to the position of an ordinary farm servant. At first, Heathcliff did not mind. Cathy taught him what she learned and played or worked with him in the fields. Cathy ran wild with him and had a share in all his scrapes. They both bade fair to grow up regular little savages, while Hindley Earnshaw kissed and fondled his young wife, utterly heedless of their fate. An adventure suddenly changed the course of their lives. One Sunday evening, Cathy and Heathcliff ran down to Thrushcross Grange to peep through the windows and see how the little Lintons spent their Sundays. They looked in and saw Isabella at one end of the to them splendid drawing-room and Edgar at the other, both in floods of tears, peevishly quarrelling. So elate were the two little savages from Wuthering Heights at this proof of their neighbor's inferiority that they burst into peals of laughter. The little Lintons were terrified, and to frighten them still more, Cathy and Heathcliff made a variety of frightful noises. They succeeded in terrifying not only the children, but their silly parents, who imagined the yells to come from a gang of burglars, determined on robbing the house. They let the dogs loose in this belief, and the bulldog seized Cathy's bare little ankle, for she had lost her shoes in the bog. While Heathcliff was trying to throttle off the brute, the man-servant came up, and taking both the children prisoner, conveyed them into the lighted hall. There, to the humiliation and surprise of the Lintons, the lame little vagrant was discovered to be Miss Earnshaw, and her fellow Miss Deminent, that strange acquisition my late neighbor made in his journey to Liverpool, a little lascar or an american or spanish castaway cathy stayed five weeks at thrushcross grange by which time her ankle was quite well and her manners much improved young mrs earnshaw had tried her best during this visit to endeavour by a judicious mixture of fine clothes and flattery to raise the standard of cathy's self-respect she went home then a beautiful and finely dressed young lady to find Heathcliff in equal measure deteriorated, the mere farm-servant whose clothes were soiled with three months' service in mire and dust, with unkempt hair and grimy face and hands. Heathcliff, you may come forward, cried Mr. Hindley, enjoying his discomfiture and gratified to see what a forbidding young blackguard he would be compelled to present himself. You may come and wish Miss Catherine welcome, like the other servants. Cathy, catching a glimpse of her friend in his concealment, flew to embrace him. She bestowed seven or eight kisses on his cheek within the second, and then stopped, and drawing back, burst into a laugh, exclaiming, Why, how very black and cross you look, and how, how funny and grim. But that's because I'm used to Edgar and Isabella Linton. Well, Heathcliff, have you forgotten me? Shake hands, Heathcliff, said Mr. Earnshaw condescendingly. Once in a way, that is permitted. I shall not, replied the boy, finding his tongue at last. I shall not stand to be laughed at. I shall not bear it. From this time Catherine's friendship with Heathcliff was checkered by intermittent jealousy on his side and intermittent disgust upon hers, and for this evil turn, far more than for any coarser brutality, Heathcliff longed for revenge on Hindley Earnshaw. Meanwhile, Edgar Linton, greatly smitten with the beautiful Catherine, went from time to time to visit at Wuthering Heights. He would have gone far oftener, but he had a terror of Hindley Earnshaw's reputation and shrank from encountering him. For this fine young Oxford gentleman, this proud young husband, was sinking into worse excesses than any of his wild Earnshaw ancestors. A defiant sorrow had driven him to desperation. In the summer following Catherine's visit to Thrushcross Grange, his only son and heir had been born. An occasion of great rejoicings suddenly dashed by the discovery that his wife, his idol, was sinking fast in consumption. Hindley refused to believe it, and his wife kept her flighty spirits till the end. But one night, while leaning on his shoulder, a fit of coughing took her, a very slight one, She put her two hands about his neck, her face changed, and she was dead. Hindley grew desperate and gave himself over to wild companions, to excesses of dissipation and tyranny. His treatment of Heathcliff was enough to make a fiend of a saint. Heathcliff bore it with sullen patience as he had borne the blows and kicks of his childhood, turning them into a lever for extorting advantages. The aches and wants of his body were redeemed by a fierce joy at heart, for in this degradation of Hindley Earnshaw he recognized the instrument of his own revenge. Time went on, ever making a sharper difference between this gypsy hind and his beautiful young mistress. Time went on, leaving the two fast friends enough, but leaving also in the heart of Heathcliff a passionate rancor against the man who of set purpose had made him unworthy of Catherine's hand and of the other man on whom it was to be bestowed for edgar linton was infatuated with the naughty tricksy young beauty of wuthering heights her violent temper did not frighten him although his own character was singularly sweet placid and feeble her compromising friendship with such a mere boor as young Heathcliff was only a trifling annoyance, easily to be excused. And when his own father and mother died of a fever caught in nursing her, he did not love her less for the sorrow she brought. A fever she had wilfully taken in despair and a sudden sickness of life. One evening pretty Cathy came into the kitchen to tell Nelly Dean that she had engaged herself to marry Edgar Linton. Heathcliff Unseen was seated on the other side of the settle on a bench by the wall, quite hidden from those at the fireside. Cathy was very elated, but not at all happy. Edgar was rich, handsome, young, gentle, passionately in love with her. Still, she was miserable. Nellie Dean, who was nursing the baby, Herriton, by the fire, finally grew out of patience with her whimsical discontent. Your brother will be pleased, she said the old lady and gentleman will not object, I think. You will escape from a disorderly, comfortless home into a wealthy, respectable one, and you love Edgar, and Edgar loves you. All seems smooth and easy. Where is the obstacle? Here, and here, replied Catherine, striking one hand on her forehead and the other on her breast. In whichever place the soul lives, in my soul and in my heart, I'm convinced I'm wrong. That's very strange. I cannot make it out. It's my secret, but if you will not mock at me, I'll explain it. I can't do it distinctly, but I'll give you a feeling of how I feel. She seated herself by me again, her countenance grew sadder and graver, and her clasped hands trembled. Nellie, do you never dream queer dreams? she said suddenly after some minutes' reflection. Yes, now and then, I answered. And so do I. I've dreamt in my life dreams that have stayed with me ever after and changed my ideas. They've gone through and through me like wine through water and altered the color of my mind. And this is one. I'm going to tell it, but take care not to smile at any part of it. Oh, don't, Miss Catherine, I cried. We're dismal enough without conjuring up ghosts and visions to perplex us. She was vexed but she did not proceed. Apparently taking up another subject, she recommenced in a short time. If I were in heaven, Nellie, I should be extremely miserable. Because you are not fit to go there, I answered. All sinners would be miserable in heaven. But it is not that. I dreamt once that I was there. I tell you I won't hearken to your dreams, Miss Catherine. I'll go to bed, I interrupted again. She laughed and held me down, for I made a motion to leave my chair. "'This is nothing,' cried she. "'I was only going to say that heaven did not seem to be any home, and I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth. And the angels were so angry that they flung me out into the middle of the heath on the top of Wuthering Heights, where I woke sobbing for joy. That will do to explain my secret as well as the other.' I've no more business to marry Edgar Linton than I have to be in heaven, and if the wicked man in there hadn't brought Heathcliff so low, I shouldn't have thought of it. It would degrade me to marry Heathcliff now, so he shall never know how I love him, and that not because he's handsome, Nelly, but because he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same, and Linton's is as different as a moonbeam from lightning or frost from fire ere this speech ended i became sensible of heathcliff's presence having noticed a slight movement i turned my head and saw him rise from the bench and steal out noiselessly he had listened till he had heard catherine say that it would degrade her to marry him and then he stayed to hear no further my companion, sitting on the ground, was prevented by the back of the settle from remarking his presence or departure. But I started and bade her hush. Why? she asked, gazing nervously round. Joseph is here, I answered, catching opportunely the roll of his cart wheels up the road, and Heathcliff will be coming in with him. Unfortunate creature, as soon as you become Mrs. Linton, he loses friend and love and all have you considered how you'll bear the separation and how he'll bear to be quite deserted in the world because miss catherine he quite deserted we separated she exclaimed with an accent of indignation who is to separate us pray they'll meet the fate of milo not as long as i live ellen for no mortal creature every linton on the face of the earth might melt into nothing before I could consent to forsake Heathcliff. My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning. My great thought in living is himself. If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be, and if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to a mighty stranger. I should not seem a part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, I'm well aware, as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight but necessary. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of our separation again. It is impracticable, and... She paused and hid her face in the folds of my gown. But I jerked it forcibly away. I was out of patience with her folly. Poor Cathy, beautiful, haughty, and capricious. Who should guide and counsel her? Her besotted drunken brother? The servant who did not love her and was impatient of her weathercock veerings? No and heathcliff who brutalized and rude as he was at least did love and understand her heathcliff who had walked out of the house her rejection burning in his ears not to enter it till he was fitted to exact both love and vengeance he did not come back that night though the thunder rattled and the rain streamed over wuthering heights though cathy shawless in the wind and wet stood calling him through the violent storms that drowned and baffled her cries All night she would not leave the hearth, but lay on the settle sobbing and moaning, all soaked as she was, with her hands on her face and her face to the wall. A strange augury for her marriage, these first dreams of her affianced love. Not dreams, indeed, but delirium, for the next morning she was burning and tossing in fever, near to death's door, as it seemed. But she won through, and Edgar's parents carried her home to nurse, As we know, they took the infection and died within a few days of each other, nor was this the only ravage that the fever made. Catherine, always hasty and fitful in temper, was henceforth subject at rare intervals to violent and furious rages which threatened her life and reason by their extremity. The doctor said she ought not to be crossed. She ought to have her own way, And it was nothing less than murder in her eyes for any one to presume to stand up and contradict her. But the strained temper, the spoiled authoritative ways, the saucy caprices of his bride were no blemishes to Edgar Linton's eyes. He was infatuated, and believed himself the happiest man alive on the day he led her to Gimmerton Chapel, three years subsequent to his father's death despite so many gloomy auguries the marriage was a happy one at first catherine was petted and humoured by every one with edgar for a perpetual worshipper his pretty weak-natured sister isabella as an admiring companion and for the necessary spectator of her happiness nelly dean who had been induced to quit her nursling at wuthering heights suddenly heathcliff returned not the old heathcliff but a far more dangerous enemy, a tall, athletic, well-formed man, intelligent and severe. A half-civilized ferocity lurked yet in the depressed brows and eyes, full of black fire, but it was subdued, and his manner was even dignified, though too stern for grace. A formidable rival for boyish Edgar Linton, with his only son's petulance, constitutional timidity, and weak health cathy though she was really attached to her husband gave him cruel pain by her undisguised and childish delight at heathcliff's return he had a presentiment that evil would come if the old friendship thus revived and would willingly have forbidden heathcliff the house but edgar so anxious lest any cross be given to his wife with a double reason then for tenderly guarding her health could not inflict a serious sorrow upon her with only a baseless jealousy for its excuse. Thus Heathcliff became intimate at Thrushcross Grange, the second house to which he was made welcome, the second hearth he meant to ruin. At this time he was lodging at Wuthering Heights. On his return he had first intended, he told Catherine, just to have one glimpse of your face, a stare of surprise, perhaps, and pretended pleasure afterwards settle my score with hindley and then prevent the law by doing execution on myself End of chapter fifteen part one